Amen. Thank you, Brother Mike. Book of Philippians tonight in chapter 4. If you have your Bible, uh, flip over there to the book of Philippians uh, chapter 4. We'll be there again tonight. Lord willing, we'll be uh, there again next week and for several weeks following as we continue the series that we have titled Calm, Putting Your Anxieties to Rest. And so we're going to talk about that again tonight. We encourage you to be here Sunday morning uh, for the final message in our Fear Not series. This Sunday morning we're talking about how you don't have to fear where you stand with God. You can know 100% for sure uh, where you stand with the God of heaven. And by the way, that is very important. Uh, your standing with God is, is very, very important. And sadly, there are a number of people, um, some that may be even be here Sunday morning, that, that uh, think their standing with God is based on them being a good person or uh, them doing enough good works that in the end will outweigh their bad works and, and they'll tip the scales in their favor and God will say, come on in, or, or they're convinced that their standing with God is based upon how faithful they are or how consecrated or dedicated they are to some religious ritual uh, that they've grown up with their whole life and that somehow they've been convinced that doing that is, is what's going to earn them enough brownie points with God uh, to, uh, to let them into heaven and sadly salvation has nothing to do with any of that uh, nothing whatsoever and so we're going to talk about the angels appearance to the shepherds uh, what a what a motley crew to announce the coming of the savior to a bunch of stinky smelly social outcast known as shepherds but that's who the angel announced the coming of the messiah to and so we're going to learn some things about the shepherds that you may not have known. And uh, then we're going to uh, talk a little bit about um, our standing uh, with God. So I hope you'll be here, invite your family and friends to come and be here. It's what we've designated as Christmas Sunday. And then, of course, we'll meet on Christmas Eve as well. And hope that whatever family you have in town will come to church with you at 1045 and We'll have kind of a, a casual service that morning. We'll have a choir. Uh, we'll have the kids up on the platform, and we'll have some fun with them, and, and uh, we'll have uh, some singing, and, and we'll have a special, and some time in the Word. And then we're going to send you home, let you spend the rest of the morning, rest of the afternoon, and evening with your family. Well, tonight I want to start out with a word of prayer, and I want you to join me tonight as we begin um, this third message in prayer, but here's what I want you to do. I want you to pray with me. I'm going to pray, and then I want you to pray that phrase after me out loud. You got it? Everybody on the same page? All right, before we start, I want you to take your fingers, and I want you to put them on your temples like this. Everybody, take your fingers, put them on your temples like this. Keep them there while we pray. All right, put both fingers. One finger won't get it. God won't hear you with just one finger. You got to have both fingers on your temples the whole time while we pray. I'm going to pray and you repeat after me. Thank you, Lord, for my amygdala. Thank you, Lord, for the two almond-shaped neural clusters. 
that reside inside my brain. I know I wouldn't be alive without them. Amen. How many of you have ever heard of your amygdala? Be honest, okay, if you haven't, I hadn't either. All right? What we just prayed is the truth, by the way. Without your amygdala, you would not be alive. Let me tell you about uh, my amygdala. They kept me from getting bitten by a rabies-infected dog years ago as a kid growing up in Tyrone. I was pedaling my bicycle on what I think now is known as A Street. Back in the day, we didn't have street names. We just knew it by whoever lived in that house, and they lived by them. Um, some Tyrone uh, uh, natives probably still do that. A Street, I believe I've, I've got the right street, or I'll, I'll define the street for you Tyronites. It was last north and south street on the west edge of town. It was um, the north and south street right behind what used to be called Mendenhall's Gas Station for you old timers. Uh, some of you are shaking your head. Sam knows what, what I'm talking about. I'm talking about that road. It's a, it's a north and, and south road. If you go south across the highway, used to be Shadeswell there, and you go on down, and you can in, eventually end up in Hardesty, and you go north, and you turn left and go to the Bowers Farm, and you turn right, and there's, I don't know what that place out there is called now. It used to be where Stockup's grandma lived. Um, <laughs> I don't know what it's called now. But uh, anyway, I was pedaling my bike when all of a sudden I heard this dog barking. And so I looked behind me and there was this dog running after me, barking and growling and baring its teeth and foaming at the mouth. White foam was coming out its mouth and it was spewing up uh, onto its face. And I started pedaling my little legs for all I was worth, trying to get away from, from that animal. And I did. I was able to get away from it because of my amygdala. Our amygdala operate like an alarm system. If your home is equipped with an alarm system and someone tries breaking in by either breaking a window or breaking a lock or, or trying to pry a door open, then you're going to be warned by your alarm system. And you're going to know immediately that you need to get up, get out, and get safe. Amygdala do the same thing. When I saw that dog coming at me with its teeth bearing down on my calves and this white foam coming out its mouth, I knew that I was in trouble. I didn't have to, 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 to think, even for a moment, there's a dog coming. He's angry. He's got big teeth. He might have rabies. And if he bites me, I'm going to have to have these nasty shots in my stomach. I'm not pedaling fast enough to get away from that dog, so I better start pedaling a little faster. No, I didn't have to think not one of those things. 
The moment I saw that, my amygdala kicked in, and it triggered my survival instincts, and I started pedaling really, really fast. Here's another illustration. If you've ever been at a baseball game, and you've, you've seen a foul ball coming at you, you didn't have to think, that baseball is traveling really, really fast, and it appears to be coming straight for my face. And so I better move, or I better put up my hands. No, as soon as you saw that, your amygdala kicked in, and boom, you reacted. You either ducked or you went to one side or the other or you put your hands up. Uh, whatever, whatever instinct kicked in, that very moment is what you did. And I did some reading on these little blessings, and here's what I found. When the amygdala command, the rest of the body reacts. For example, our pupils dilate, improving our vision. We breathe faster, pumping more oxygen into the lungs. Our pulse rate increases, infusing more blood into the system. And I know this one from personal experience, we pedal faster. Adrenaline turns us into Hercules. You may have seen those videos where people have done some pretty amazing things that they normally would not be able to do. Why? Because of this sudden rush of adrenaline, thanks to our amygdala. We're faster, we're stronger, and we're better prepared for fight or flight, whichever the occasion calls for. Surface-level blood vessels constrict Reducing trauma-related blood loss in the moments after injury. Listen, even our bowel system reacts, sometimes embarrassingly, by offloading the unnecessary weight of what we had for lunch or breakfast or supper. So you get an idea about the amygdala. Now back to the home alarm system. They are a great thing to have. They really are. If you don't have one, we, we need to get one ourselves, but they're, they're, very, they're very good. Good. And I say they're, they're good unless, unless they're too sensitive. Unless they're too sensitive. No one wants an alarm system that goes off every time the wind gushes, or gust, I should say, or every time a, a bird flies by. We don't want a super sensitive alarm system, and we don't want super sensitive amygdala. Perpetual anxiety is amygdala with an itchy trigger finger. And remember that it is perpetual anxiety that Paul is referring to in verse 6 when he says, be careful, that word mean, literally means anxious or worrisome. He says, be careful for nothing. That is in the, the present active tense, which means, implies an ongoing state 
of worry or an ongoing perpetual state of anxiety. I'll say it again tonight, that the presence of anxiety is unavoidable, but the prison of anxiety is optional. There are, there are times when we have to go there, when life takes us there, but church, listen to me, we don't have to live there. We don't have to stay there. There are going to be times, we, uh, as it was yesterday, I had to make up uh, the uh, physical agility test uh, for the police department, and chief was there, and I, I, I've been, ever since it was at 4 o'clock, at 3 o'clock, I started dreading this thing. I went on to my wife, and I said, man, I, I so dread this. I am anxious. And I saw the chief there, and I said, I'm anxious. Yeah, but that's different. That's not the same guy. And he's right. But I was still anxious. I, I was worried. I was worked up. And, and that was an unavoidable part of my life that day. But you know what? When it was done, it was done. I went home. Everything was good. I didn't live there. So you know what I'm talking about? Sometimes we're, we, things happen in our life and, 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 and things come up in our life. And whew, boy, we just get anxious. And we get worried, but it's, and that's unavoidable. But again, church, we never, ever have to live there. Perpetual anxiety sees a mole on the skin and immediately thinks it's cancer. It sees a dip in the economy and immediately thinks recession. It hears a teenager complain and concludes, well, that's it, they're going to be on drugs before they ever leave the house. Perpetual anxiety is a mental alarm system that never quite turns off. It's just always on. It's always going off. Listen, limited anxiety is helpful. We, we need to be alerted to danger. When we're walking through a field and we hear this... We need to be alerted. That's not good. And we need to step back. Only a fool would go, what is that? <laughs> when we're driving down the road and a child jumps off the curb in front of us, and <gasps> we need to be alerted. Our amygdala need to, boom, immediately trigger a survival instinct. When we see a dog run across the road, <clears throat> we need to stop. We see a cat run across the road. Well, let's just go on. <laughs> you knew where that was going, didn't you? Limited anxiety is helpful. But church, listen, we do not need to nor have to live in a state of heightened fear. And let me tell you why. We've looked at a couple of things already. Number one, because of the Lord's sovereignty. He's in control. And I know sometimes we, we think everything is out of control, but listen to me tonight. If you're a believer, nothing is out of control in your life. 
Nothing comes in or goes out of your life without the permission of the God who's running everything. And nothing will come in or go out of your life without his permission, and nothing will go in or out of my life or your life unless it, it serves his purpose for our life. God is sovereign. That's why Paul said, rejoice in the Lord. I'm not just rejoice in your hard times and be glad that they're coming. No, that's not it at all. Rejoice in the fact that the Lord is sovereign. And so whatever it is that's come, he knows. And then we talked last week about how we can rejoice in the Lord's mercy. One of the greatest causes of anxiety, especially in the lives of, of believers, is unresolved guilt. Unresolved regret from things we've done in the past and things that, that we just can't get over that God has forgiven years ago. But yet we still struggle with those things. And I don't know if I, if I said this last week or not, but there's a reason why the windshield is bigger than the rearview mirror. Because what's ahead of you is so much more important than what's behind you. Amen? So we can rejoice in the Lord's sovereignty and we can rejoice in the Lord's mercy and we can rejoice in the fact that he is near. Or as Paul says in our text, and this is where we're going to study tonight, Paul puts it like this, he's at hand. Look at it, Philippians chapter 4 and verse 5. Let your moderation, we'll, we'll come back and study that word in a minute. Let your moderation be known unto all men. The Lord is at hand. Somebody say amen. The Lord is at hand. I want you to go back with me in your minds to the life of Joseph. We studied the life of Joseph a year or two ago. Joseph was hated by his brothers who decided to kill him and throw him into a pit. And had their greed not been a feather heavier than their thirst for blood, he would have died. There's absolutely no doubt about that. But instead, he was sold to a group of traveling merchants who then took him into Egypt, where he was raffled off like a farm animal. The great-grandson of Abraham was sold to the highest bidder. Joseph ended up in the employ of a man named Potiphar. He was able to earn his boss's favor, and he worked his way up to the top of the household. But then the woman of the house put the hanky-panky on him. The lady got shady, and Joseph got out of there leaving his coat in her hands. And when her husband came home and she accused Joseph of attempted rape, her husband believed her, and so Joseph ended up into prison. Joseph landed in prison for a crime that he did not commit. 
But Joseph didn't give up. We never read of him throwing a pity party or shaking an angry fist in the face of God. Instead, he became a model prisoner. He made his bed, he made friends, and he made a good impression on the warden who eventually put him in charge of all of the other prisoners. Two of those prisoners happened to be from Pharaoh's palace. One was a baker, one was a butler. And while they were in prison together, Joseph and the baker and the butler, one night the baker and the butler both had a dream. And it just so happened, how many of you believe it just so happened? Yeah, it didn't just so happen. God's sovereign. But they went to Joseph. Joseph happened to have a knack for interpreting dreams. And they went to Joseph and they told him what the dream was. His news to the baker wasn't so good. He said, you need to get your affairs in order. You're going to die. His news to the butler was a little better. He said, you need to pack your bags. You're going back to the palace. And with that, Joseph said, hey, when you get out and you get back into Pharaoh's palace, listen, would you put in a good word for me? Would you, just, would you tell Pharaoh I'm really a good guy and I didn't do it and I'm innocent and I've served my time and I'd really like to get out of this hole? The butler said, not a problem. Got you covered. I think that's in there. I got your back. I'll tell him. Well, the butler got out, went back to the palace. Not a word about Joseph. For two years, two years, Joseph languished in prison. Two years. The guy said, yeah, I got your back. Never heard a thing for two years. Listen, two years is plenty of time to wonder things like, is this how God treats his children? Is this God's reward for good behavior? Do your best, and this is what you get? A dungy prison, a jail cell, and a hard bed? Does God even care? Is God even real? You would ask that question today, deism would say no. Here's what they believe and here's what they teach. They teach that God created the universe and then just abandoned it. And it's just on its own. Atheism says no, which is not surprising. A philosophy that dismisses the existence of God will in turn dismiss the possibility of a divine plan. But Christianity... Christianity says, no scratch that, Christianity screams, yes, yes, there is a God, and he's near. Here's, be turning to Genesis chapter 39, would you please, Genesis chapter 39, because here's something that we must not forget from the life of Joseph, and, and I hope you have this underlined or highlighted or circled 
marked somehow in your Bible because this is so incredibly important. Genesis chapter 39, on three occasions in that chapter, we read this, that God was with him. Genesis chapter 39, verse 2, and the Lord was with Joseph. Verse 21, but the Lord was with Joseph. He tossed in prison, but the Lord was with Joseph. Verse 23, the Lord was with him. Three times in that chapter, God reminds us that even though Joseph was in prison, God was with him. Even though Joseph was going through the storm, God was with him. Even though Joseph was was going through a terrible time in his life, listen tonight, God was with him. And church, what is said of Joseph can be said of us. The Lord is with us. Let's go back to Philippians chapter 5, would you? When you get there, say amen. Back to Philippians chapter 5, say it good and loud when you get there. All right, I'll wait. Keep going. All right, keep going. When you get there, say amen. Philippians chapter 5. Ah, Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4, look at verse 5. Let your moderation be known to all men. The word moderation there speaks of gentleness. It describes a temperament that is seasoned and mature. You might think of it this way. It's the opposite of overreaction or a sense of panic. And note that it's seen by everyone. Family members take note. Your friends sense a difference. Others may freak out or run out, but the one who lets their moderation be known is contagiously calm. Have you ever known anybody like that? Contagiously calm I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't seem to matter what's going on. They're just calm, contagiously calm. A contagiously calm person is the one who reminds others, hey, listen, the Lord is near. He's sovereign. He's merciful. He's got this. Don't worry. Don't panic. Don't freak out. That's a contagiously calm person. The Lord is near. I know you feel alone. And you may think you're alone. But understand this and be reminded of this very basic Bible principle that there is never a minute, not a minute, when you as a believer, are without God. Never a minute, not a second. There's never a moment in your life 
when you are without the Lord, God is near. God pledged his presence over and over throughout his word. To Isaac, he said in Genesis 26, fear not, for I am with thee. To Joshua, he said, be not afraid, neither be thou dismayed, for the Lord thy God is with thee, whithersoever thou goest. Talk about anxiety. Moses is now dead, and now Joshua is in charge of the entire nation of Israel. You think there may have been a little anxiety there? Maybe a little fear, a little worry, a little concern. God said, listen, there's no need for that because I'm going to be with you. And then in the ultimate declaration of his nearness, we read this in Matthew 1.23 in the midst of the Christmas story. Behold, a virgin shall be with child, and she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is, read it with me, church, God with us. God with us. And I understand that Jesus is no longer walking on this earth with and among his people. But you understand this tonight, that he's still with us in the form of his spirit who indwells us at the moment of our salvation, we receive the Holy Ghost. It's not something we don't get saved and then something else happens over here and we receive the Holy Ghost. No, He comes to indwell in us the moment we call upon the name of the Lord. Listen, Christian, don't ever assume that God is just passively watching from a distance. You're not alone and if the devil ever tries to convince you otherwise do not indulge the lie because if you do your problem will be amplified by a sense of loneliness it's one thing to face a challenge but to face it alone isolation creates a downward spiral of fret. Let me say that again. Isolation, or I might even say even the thought of isolation, creates a downward spiral of fret. Hey, listen to me tonight. Instead of taking that trip, Choose to clutch the truth of Scripture with both hands. And here's a good one to hold on to. Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 5. For he hath said, I will never leave thee, finish it with me, church, nor forsake thee. That's God's promise to us. I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. Here's another one from Psalm 37. If you're taking notes, it's verse 25. David said, I have been young, and now I'm old, 
Yet have I not seen the righteous forsaken. And listen, because God is near, glad Brother Mike sung those songs tonight. Because here's a reality, because the Lord is near, we can take our concerns to Him. Doesn't matter what it is. To a degree, I, I think this was the, the reassuring lesson that Jesus wanted the disciples to take away from the miracle of the fish and the bread. You remember, remember that? And we call it the, the feeding of the 5,000. And I know we don't normally look at, at that passage of Scripture, that miracle, that story from this particular angle. But I believe that in part it was crafted uh, for the purpose of speaking to the anxious heart. Again, you know the story Jesus told the disciples to do the impossible. He told them to feed 5,000 men, not counting women and children. If each man was married, that's another 5,000. If each family had one child, it's another 5,000. They had two children, that's another 5,000. If they were Knutson, that's a lot of people. Or if they were a member of Fellowship Baptist Church. That's a lot of people. And if you don't know, if you want an idea of what that kind of crowd would look like, imagine a capacity crowd at a sports arena. And you get a pretty good idea. And Jesus wanted the disciples to feed them all. And if you know the story, here's what you know. The disciples wanted to send them home. All of them. And as you read the narrative in John 6 or Matthew chapter 14, you can sense the angst of the disciples as they try and process the Lord's words when he told them to feed them. Go back and read that story tonight from this perspective. And I think you'll see it. I think you'll even sense it. How are we going to feed that many people with just five loaves of bread and two sardine-like fish? And from a human perspective, they had every reason to feel unsettled. They had every reason to be anxious. But can I submit this to you tonight? They also had every reason to feel at peace. You see, to this point, in their experience with Jesus, let me just give you an idea of what they'd seen to this point. They'd seen him he, uh, 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 heal leprosy. They had seen him heal a centurion servant without even going to where that servant was. They had seen him heal Peter's mother-in-law. So yes, Peter was married. He did have a wife. They saw him calm a violent sea. They saw him heal a, a paralytic. They saw them, him heal a woman who had been sick for 12 years. They had seen him raise a girl from the dead for crying out loud. And, and, and drive out an evil spirit and heal a demon-possessed man in a cemetery and change water into wine and heal a man who had been an invalid for 38 years. But go home and read uh, uh, Matthew and go home and read uh, Mark. 
And here's what you'll find. They never once pause long enough to think about all of the things that, that God had done and then ask themselves this question, do you suppose that maybe God has an answer for this too? Do you suppose that maybe God's already got this problem solved? We just need to listen to him. Did it ever occur on any of them, uh, to any of them to ask Jesus for help? And here's what you're going to read in each one of those narratives. No. They never stopped one time to acknowledge what Jesus had done in the past and maybe could do right now if they would only but ask him. They acted as though Jesus had never done anything miraculous and they opted instead to tell him, by the way, listen to this, this is so crazy. They opted to tell him who, by the way, had created the whole world told him what to do. Now how absurd is that? The created is going to tell the creator what to do. And they told him nothing can be done because we don't have enough money. Well, you know the story. Jesus used a little boy's lunch to feed that entire crowd and this is cool they had enough leftovers to fill 12 baskets maybe one for each disciple we don't know that but that may have been the case and among the many many lessons learned that day is that anxiety is needless come on Anxiety is needless because Jesus is near. Now granted, you aren't facing the challenge of feeding tens of thousands of hungry bellies. But you may be facing the challenge of failing health tonight. Or insufficient funds. Or a slumping oil field. Or a struggling marriage. Or a wayward child. Or a recent loss. On one hand, you have a problem. On the other, you have a limited quantity of things like wisdom and energy and patience and time. What you have is nowhere what you need tonight. You have a thimble full. <laughs> and you need bucket loads. And you're anxious tonight. You were honest. Yes, Pastor, I, I am. I'm anxious. Got an email just this week from one of our members. Said, Pastor, would you pray for me? so anxious just all the time anxious all the time maybe that's you tonight maybe you're thinking that that, that God has has given you just too much to handle and I just encourage you tonight to stop for a moment 
redirect your thinking from what you don't have to what Jesus does have. Instead of being paralyzed with fear by the challenges that lie ahead of you, be encouraged by faith as you consider all of the things that God has done for you in the past. And remember this tonight. The Lord is at hand. He's right there. He's near. He's close. And he's waiting for you.